It was the 22nd of March, 2000, that uh, the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northern, urged all the people in his state to cut out any non-essential gatherings of 10 people or more. Bishop Gerald Glenn, pastor of the New Deliverance Evangelistic Church, subsequently met with his congregation on at least one Sunday thereafter. And during one of those services, it's reported that he said, I firmly believe that God is larger than this dreaded virus. And on April 11th, 2020, Glenn died from complications due to the coronavirus. And, and I don't mean to do any disrespect to Glenn, but his experience can be a teaching moment for us. I, I want you to think about how you feel about what happened with Glenn and what Glenn said. He said, I firmly believe that God is larger than this virus. And as you think about that, how do you feel? Do you resonate with that statement? Do, do you embrace it? Or is it something you find yourself trying to distance yourself from? And I think we as Christians should all be able to affirm the statement that I believe that God is stronger than this dreaded virus. If we were a call and response church, there should be some that's rights, some amens, and some preacher brothers. But functionally, we might differ. And so where should we find ourselves in this divide between trusting and testing? So this morning, as a congregation, we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus, the third temptation in Luke, and we're going to explore the questions that we encounter about trusting God and about testing God. In Luke chapter 4, verse 9, the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. For each of the temptations, the setting matters. The first temptation where Jesus was tempted to turn a stone into bread, it happens in the desert because the setting of hunger was necessary. In the second temptation, Jesus is brought up to a very high mountain and shown all the kingdoms of the world because he was going to be tempted with their glory and their authority. And now in this third testing, Jesus is taken to Jerusalem, and not just to Jerusalem, but specifically to the temple. But why Jerusalem? We New Testament Christians will look at uh, that, that ancient faith we inherited from the Old Testament, and we will sometimes say something like, well, they believed that God lived in the temple. And that statement's only half accurate. It's only half true. They did believe that, and the reason they believe that is because the Old Testament scriptures testify to the fact that God did indeed dwell in the temple. After Solomon finished the temple, we're told, God saying, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built and put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So God says, the temple is my dwelling place. The temple is my home. And so what the temple meant was not just the presence of God, but the presence of God also meant deliverance and protection. So nearness to the temple was a sign of protection. Psalm 61, 4, let me abide in your tent forever and find refuge under the shelter of your wing. We have stories like Jeremiah 7, where, where people are saying, hey, I'm not concerned about these prophetic messages because we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of 
the Lord. See, to a Jew, one's location to the temple really mattered. Maybe a way we could think about this is if you were, if you remember back to when you were trying to learn to swim and your parents might have stood six feet off your mom or your dad and they said, jump and I'll catch you. And as a kid, you're not sure that they can catch you there. And so you ask them to come a little closer, you come a little closer until they're close enough that you're willing to jump. For the Jew, the temple was the presence of God. And so their nearness to the temple was also their nearness to God. So Jesus is taken to the one place that every Jew knows. God will protect you. You are in the shelter of God when you're in the nearness and the presence of the temple. And it is there in that setting that the devil speaks of divine protection. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Now, now this may be strange for you to think about, but it seems apparent to me that the devil has at least a freshman level Bible class experience. I mean, he, he somehow has learned the scriptures. And, and, and let's imagine that in that Bible class, he wrote a term paper on Psalm 91. What kind of a grade do you think he would have gotten? Some people might say, well, I'm sure he would have gotten an F. And you ask why, and well, because he's the devil, I'm sure he just would have gotten an F for that. But I think he actually would have got a pretty decent grade, a good grade, because of his understanding of Psalm 91. Psalm 91, which the devil quotes, begins by saying, you who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And so Jesus is taken to the very depths of the spiritual bunker, the temple, and he is reminded that he is indeed in the shelter and in the shadow of the Most High. And not only does the devil know the setting of the psalm, he knows some of the main themes and some of the main ideas. As we think about the devil outlining the theme of this, Psalm 91 says that God is a refuge and a fortress in whom we can trust. What happens to those who take refuge in this God? Well, the psalmist lists some of these dangers. The, the snare of the fowler, the deadly pestilence, the terror of night, the arrows, arrows the destruction, the war. And, and so when you encounter these things, what do we expect? Well, we expect that no evil shall befall you. No scourge shall come near your tent. Psalm 91 is full of promises. God says, I will deliver. I will protect. I will answer. I will be with them. I will rescue them and honor them. And so the devil doesn't misrepresent any part of Psalm 91. In fact, I'm guessing if he preached a trial sermon at your service from the text of Psalm 91, you would say, let's hire him. This guy knows his scripture. In fact, we could say his, his point of Psalm 91 seems to be, it says what it says, and it means what it means. And I could even imagine at this point the devil giving Jesus a bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Jesus, you should jump, because scripture clearly indicates that God will protect the righteous one. And if God would do that for a righteous one, what would God be willing to do for his own beloved son? Jesus knows God said it. Jesus believes it. But for Jesus, that doesn't settle it. Because Jesus answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God 
to the test. What the devil is saying, Jesus, in your context, you should use Psalm 91 as your guiding text. And Jesus instead responds and says, no, Deuteronomy 6 should in fact be my guiding text. Now, I would love to spend a lot of time talking about the implications of this for biblical study and biblical interpretation, but, but we're not going to take a lot of time. But, but I would simply say that sometimes we might, might need something more than a book, chapter, and verse, because the devil can give book, chapter, verse. What we need to do is we need to learn to discern what scriptures best build a bridge between where we are and the meanings and messages of those scriptures. How do we know if our context should be guided by text A or by text B? We need to develop a deep knowledge of God and a deep knowledge of the Word of God. See, the irony is that you have to know God deeply, and to do that, you have to know Scripture deeply. And unless you know Scripture deeply, you cannot know God deeply. And Jesus seems to know both well. And that's why he's able to discern that Psalm 91 should not be his primary guiding text. See, what Psalm 91 is calling for is an act of faith based on God's promise of protection. The, the psalmist is promising another, he's saying you, you will be, he's promising another protection. And, and, and the reason that promise it seems to be made is so that that person will actively pursue something that perhaps they're not pursuing, or perhaps they're shy about pursuing. See, in that text, God takes the initiative to encourage someone to move forward on the basis of faith. But what about Deuteronomy 6 that Jesus quotes? So what Deuteronomy 6 does is it points back to an incident in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. There, the Israelites had arrived at a place called Rephidim. But, but they didn't arrive there as a bank blank slate. They arrived with a whole list and resume of the ways that God has provided for his people. They have witnessed the plagues, the Red Sea, already the provision of water, and already the provision of bread in the desert. And so when they arrive at this place and there is no water, what God wants them to do is to trust, trust him that he will provide what is needed. But instead of trusting him, the people will say, is the Lord among us or not? In, in fact, what the people are, are saying is, God, if you really are with us and if you really are here, you need to show us that you are with us by performing yet another miracle. And it seems that the disappointment at this point is because after all we've been through, God is saying, can't you just trust me? Or do I need to yet prove once again that I am indeed with you? And so they tested God. They demanded a sign. They showed their hardened hearts. See, Psalm 91 and Deuteronomy 6 both call for faith, but they call for two very different expressions of faith. We could say Psalm 91 is calling for an active or maybe even a risk-taking faith, but Deuteronomy 6 is calling for a passive or a reverential expression of faith. Both are a sign of faith, but different signs of faith are appropriate in different contexts. So how would we know whether we need a reverential faith or whether we need an active, daring faith? Now, first of all, we know that it's not an either-or decision. That the one context may call for this response and another context may call for a different response. So I think the lesson from this temptation is our situation should be guided based on God's leading and his initiative. Maybe a question we could ask ourselves is whose 
the pilot. Who's piloting the plane? In Psalm 91, God is piloting the plane and he's encouraging the righteous one to go actively and to do something with his divine promise of protection. But in Deuteronomy 6, what is happening is the passengers are on the plane and they're not sure the, the captain is doing his job in the cockpit, so they charge the cockpit and begin to give orders and demands to the pilot. And what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do here through this active faith is to say, charge the cockpit. And Jesus is saying, no, this is a time for passive faith. It is a time for me to wait on God and not to test him. See, whenever we practice an active faith, when God calls for a passive faith, the biblical name for that is testing. We test God. So we test God when we violate the natural order of how things should be. To trust means we follow God. To test means we disrupt that natural order and we try to get God to follow us. And that's exactly the order that the devil is trying to disrupt. He wants Jesus to lead and not to follow. He wants Jesus to invent a situation, which is another form of leadership, so that God will be forced to respond, which is another sort of following that he's trying to create. Satan wants Jesus to make God do his bidding, but God wants Jesus to do his own bidding. So in some ways to test God is to treat God like Amazon.com. I, I once ordered something and when the box came, it wasn't what I'd ordered. And I got on the chat feature and I said that this was the wrong item. And the customer service person didn't really properly address it. So I asked, I got on the phone and I asked to talk to a manager and I essentially said, I'm not getting off the phone until you make this right. And I wonder how much of our lives we spend testing God by saying, I ordered something from you. I, I ordered it by prayer. Or I ordered it by church attendance or I ordered it by good behavior. And I either didn't get a package or the, what I received in the package is not what I signed up for. And, and then how often do we spend our prayers functioning like complaints to the customer service department of heaven saying, you've got my order wrong. I need to get the right order. See, at its core, testing highlights a false philosophy that can infiltrate our Christian faith. We can approach faith by what we'll call a magical philosophy instead of a discipleship philosophy. Now, when I use the word magical, I'm not talking about Harry Potter or witches or wizards or any of that sort of thing, but I'm talking about a foundational belief that makes these assumptions. It's the desire to search for a formula that will guarantee my ideal outcome. So the magician wants to get from point A to point B, and they search out all the best means to, to, to get to that point, to make things happen according to their agenda. And, and if their experiment fails, then they just keep trying it until they get their desired outcome. So the key to the magician philosophy is that the individual is at the center of their world. And everything that they see is a commodity for them to use to get to the agenda that they want to get to. So the magician philosophy means seeing everything as a tool that you can use to get your desired ends. And I think we need to be honest about the fact that we all have bits and pieces and elements of us, some of it even from God, or we have that kind of a mindset or that kind of a philosophy. So I don't have the most extensive tool collection in the world, so I find sometimes when I'm doing jobs, I'm forced to look around for something to replace the thingamajigger that I'm supposed to have. And as I'm looking at everything in my house, what I'm doing is I'm looking for a tool 
that I can utilize. That's that magician mindset. Everything is there, a tool for you to use in whatever ends you want. And there are some parts of creation that God has made us, made for our use. But the mistake happens when we start to view the creator himself as a tool we can use to get our desired ends. So I want to illustrate with, uh, with an example that, that you might begin to see how we might begin to use this magician philosophy in our own lives. Think about a young girl who at the tender age of 10 wrote down the things that she wants in life. I want to be rich. I want to be beautiful. I want to be healthy. And I want to be important. And, and, and almost immediately that, that letter becomes one of her most precious possessions. And it's more than just a Christmas wish list of the life things that she wants. It becomes a map, a guide for when she's in situations. She looks at her list and says, does this help me get this or not? And she tries this and she tries that and she tries everything. And then on one occasion, somebody tells her about a God who can do anything. A God who can fulfill your heart's desires and your deepest longings. And she thinks to herself, well, maybe this all-powerful God can be the one who can finally help me get everything on my list. So she decides to look into discipleship. But along the way, she quickly learns that this is a God who will never behave like a well-trained dog. She learns that she, she won't be able to judge or evaluate God's goodness or effectiveness solely based on her wish list. In fact, she finally comes to a conclusion that if she really is going to follow this God, one of the things that she's going to need to be willing to give up and sacrifice is the list itself. But that's so hard for her because the list is precious to her. The list has all of her hopes and her dreams and her goals. Would she be able to give that up? See, conversion for her meant walking away from this magical philosophy in her approach to God. And she knew that were she to be baptized, that she would need to take that list and it too would die, and it too would be buried, and that God would then give her a list of how he wanted her to live. You know, you're thinking, okay, great story, but what does this have to do with Gerald Glenn and his statement that I firmly believe that God is stronger than this dreaded virus, the same man who died from that virus. Here's a few lessons I think that we could learn. I think we should absolutely affirm that God is indeed stronger than this dreaded virus. But I think we should also remember we follow a God who is free, who is moral, and who is a person in his own sense or in his own right in terms of his personhood. He has plans that supersede mine. He has wisdom that surpasses mine. He has character that exceeds mine. And that means sometimes he's going to work in ways that confuses me. So I cannot approach God like a spreadsheet or like a gumball machine. See, because of God's will, at least in his earthly existence, Jesus could not rest on the promises of Psalm 91. Jesus died on a cross. He was not, as the psalmist promised, protected from the snare of the fowler or the deadly pestilence or the terror of night or the arrows, or the destruction, or the war. He died alone on a cross, but he did so because he knew God's will for him. 
and God's will was not to deliver him from humanity, but his will was that through his death, he himself would deliver all humanity. So to trust in God means that we trust that he will work sometimes even in mysterious ways in us and through us. See, I think we all need to learn to say that God is bigger than this dreaded virus. We need to be able to say that when a loved one gets sick. We need to be able to say that when a loved one gets better. And we even need to learn to be able to say it when we're at the funeral of a loved one. God's ways are not our ways. Sometimes God calls us to a Psalm 91 faith. It's active and bold. And sometimes he calls us to a Deuteronomy 6 faith where we follow even when we're following in the dark. So maybe the best way to end this sermon is to ask God to give us the grace, to give us the trust that is necessary when we walk through even the darkest valley. Maybe we need to commit to saying to our king, I believe, help my unbelief. And in all of this, I think we should commit to saying, I will not put the Lord, my God, to the test. May God bless us, empower us, and work in us.